This week's Island Life examines a dark story about an unsolved murder. The body of a man was found buried close to a bridge near Burton-upon-Trent in the Midlands in 1971. Despite exhaustive inquiries by Staffordshire Police, they were unable to identify the victim, who remains unnamed and unclaimed to this day. Nobody was arrested in connection with the crime. About four years ago, a man from the area started his own investigation into what became known in the Midlands area as the case of Fred the Head. Ken Davies was determined to get to the bottom of the mystery. As time went on, his exhaustive inquiries discovered a number of interesting leads, but nothing particularly concrete. Then about six months ago, he became aware of the disappearance of a man called John Jick, a popular Manx scout leader who disappeared without trace during a trip to Liverpool with a group of scouts in February 1969. As Mr Davies delved deeper into the mystery, a number of potentially common threats developed. For a staff, the man found in Burton had incredibly similar physical characteristics to the missing Manxman – Furthermore, the timing of Mr Jick's disappearance suggested the possibility of a link warranted further investigation. John Jick lived in Murray's Road, Douglas, and worked as a clerk at the Isle of Man Steam Packet Company. He was on Merseyside at the time to attend a scouting event in Birkenhead. He left the group to drive into Liverpool to buy a gift for a friend who was retiring from his job back on the island. They never saw him again. Ken Davies has visited the island in pursuit of information which could help him solve the murder case that's remained a mystery for over half a century. He's spoken to a number of people who knew John to try to build up a clearer picture of the man. I caught up with him on his visit. I suppose the first question is, how did you get involved and why have you now come to the Isle of Man? It's quite an interesting and long story, this one, in the sense of, you're right, I came across this story about four years ago, this man that was found near Burton-upon-Trent in England, who, when I discovered it, I thought, I was living very close to that place and thought, oh, that's an interesting story, wonder who he was, wonder what happened to him, wonder what the perpetrator's motive was and things like that. And the more I looked into it, I realised there was no resolution to this. In fact, this body from 1971 has never been identified and therefore the perpetrator has never been identified. Literally, it's the perfect murder. This man was tied up and buried and left in this very inaccessible place and no one's ever been able to solve it. So, and there's some really fascinating idiosyncrasies about that particular body and why it should have been traceable. Now, why am I in the other man? Because... As part of that long investigation that we've conducted into that, one possibility that is emerging in the last six months or so, stronger and stronger and stronger, is that 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 body may belong to a missing Manx man, uh, a man called John Jick, who disappeared in 1969, in February 1969. And so what I'm doing over here uh, this week, really, is to do some more investigation and to do some more... Uh, have some more conversations with people who are who knew John Jick and knew the circumstances around his disappearance and just to see if there's any kind of connection between those two things. Now, this is a story that has developed over the years. I think you've now produced a, a, a podcast series about it, which has a huge listenership. What is it originally that drew you to this case? Well, 
I don't come from broadcast journalism. I, run, I do run a media business, but I don't get involved in broadcast journalism generally. But back in nineteen, sorry, back in two thousand and nineteen, uh, I discovered this case and, and thought it was peculiar. And I was talking to a few people about it, and I'd, I'd identified the person who'd found this body. I thought he was long gone, but I was talking to a friend of mine. He said, oh, "Actually, he's still alive, and in fact, I know him. I can put you in contact with him if you like." So. It was way outside my comfort zone talking to someone who didn't know me about a terrible situation they'd found himself in. But I, I plucked up the courage and one day, one Friday, I remember ringing him up and saying, you don't mind, you don't know me, but you don't mind telling me a little bit more information about this situation where you found this body. And he did. And he sat down with me, a guy called David Nathan, and he sat down with me for an hour and just told me everything about this discovery. And as soon as he told me the story of the discovery, I realised there were some very unusual things going on in relation to this case that just would have, should have made it solvable. And then from that situation, I just got engrossed with it. And I then started finding other people who lived nearby and who had something to tell me about the investigation. And then I got into looking at all the old newspapers about, and, uh, about the case at the time and realised there was something weird going on because he couldn't be identified through dental records and everyone can be identified through dental records. So I started getting into it in a big way as a hobby. And then COVID happened in you know 2020 and I the events I was running, we couldn't do that anymore. So I was literally going crazy. And someone said to me, well, you know all those interviews you've got about this case of Fred the Head, as it's known, Maybe you should think about doing a podcast because people, everyone loves it. Everyone's interested in it who you tell it to. So, okay, I'll, I'll do something along those lines. So I created a, an initial podcast. The reception of that was very good. And then I just carried on doing a live podcast every three weeks dis describing where we'd got to in the investigation in the preceding three weeks. So it was literally like being in the incident room that people could listen to how this investigation was progressing in real time. And today we're 46 episodes into that and you know well over half a million people listen to it around the world so it's become a very very big podcast uh, and uh, people are really into it in terms of the community trying to work out exactly what happened to Fred the Head and and currently uh, whether there's any connection to John Jick. Now one thing you mentioned to me earlier which I wasn't aware of that it's extremely rare for when a body is discovered for the police not to be able to identify that person. So in that respect, they had, they had a body, um, they had a number of identifying features, but all their inquiries, including dental records and, and pieces of, of jewellery, etc., that were found on the body, they couldn't identify him in the UK. That's right. Uh, and there were some very peculiar things about this body. So the body is found, it's tied up has no clothes apart from a pair of socks. So it's like all the identifiers have been taken away from that body. It's, and it has a ring, and it has a wedding ring. But the wedding ring is on the right-hand wedding ring finger, not the left-hand wedding ring finger. And it's a woman's wedding ring. Now, my, my wife's wedding, wedding ring would not fit me. Hmm. So it, it's an indicator this man extraordinarily thin hands. So physically... There were certain things about this body. He was, he was about five foot seven. He was thin. He was thin in the face. He had thin hands. He 
his nails were incredibly well kept. He wasn't, this guy wasn't working in any kind of industry which, which, was, uh, which meant that your hands showed the fact that you were working in that kind of industry. He was working in an office somewhere. Um, his hair was short. Now, in 69, I remember 69. You probably don't, Simon, but I do. I remember 69. No one had short hair in 69. Most people, and we know the age of this person, the age was between 23 and 39, um, which is a wide range, but, but that's all they can tell from the skull at the time. No one had short hair at that time, really, uh, of that age. So there are certain indicators. He had very unusual dentistry as well. So from that, the ring is key because there's a hallmark on that ring, and that isn't going to be uh, that's going to be uh, reliable. So we know the ring was made in between the end of '67 and the start of '68. So we know he couldn't have been killed before then, because the ring wouldn't have been available. We also know that when they did deco decomposition research into the body, they realised the body had been buried for at least nine months, but probably nearer 18 months. And it was found in March 71. So we know now that from both, if we look at the timescales from both ends, and I know that once a ring has been hallmarked, it's then got to be, goes back to the manufacturer, it then gets sold to the retailer, it then needs to be sold to the individual, they need to wear it for a period of time. So essentially, we know from a chronological perspective, the body, if you're looking, starting point is the ring, is probably about 69 when that person's killed. If you look at the chronology of the decomposition evidence from 1971, you're also going back to about 1970. So we know that body was killed between the start of 1969 and the kind of early part of 1970. It's really quite a tight window when that person died. So we know all that. But you're right, coming back to your original point, it is extremely rare for people to be killed and not identified. In fact, there's a number of rarities in this case. It's extremely rare for someone to be killed and buried. The vast majority of people who are killed in murders are found where they fall. So that's a rarity. Is it, It's extremely rare for, for a body to be found with all the identifiers taken off it. So that's extremely rare. And it's also extremely rare for the dental records that come from that body to be untraceable in the whole of the UK or the whole of England. Because the first thing they did correctly was to look at the dental records and say, well, we're going to find out who he is through the dental records because there were some quite unique dentistry going on. But they couldn't, which is a clue in itself that he probably didn't come from, certainly not local area, and probably not England. And nobody reported him missing. No, he, he was not missing from work. He was not missing from a family. He was, Mum and Dad didn't say that our 28-year-old, 32-year-old's gone missing. No one reported him missing. So it's an incredible mystery, and probably one of only a very small handful of people in the UK in the last 100 years who have been found and not been able to be identified. So this traceability, I suppose, adds weight to the possibility that he came from somewhere outside the UK. And, and this is where the Isle of Man connection maybe was first sparked, is it? The fact that we had somebody, John Jick, who, who went missing at roughly the same time. Well, in hindsight, in hindsight, it does 
kind of mean that. But we didn't know that at the time. So we didn't start going to look for people from the Isle of Man because we didn't know that anyone was missing from the Isle of Man. But about six months ago, we were going through, I have a small team of people who work with me on this, and we were going through, who could this be? And we were just looking for missing people anywhere. And I came across this story uh, from February 1st, 1969, of a man who'd gone missing in Liverpool, a scoutmaster from Douglas, from Murray's Road in Douglas. And the more I read it, the more I thought, oh, hang on, because... All these physical characteristics of his height, exactly the same. His hair length, exactly the same. His hair colour, exactly the same. His thinness of body, exactly the same. His thin hands, exactly the same. And he goes missing at exactly the right time. And he's not in England. And so therefore, you know, I, I think the... Burton Police did, Staffordshire Police did a good job back in back in uh, the early 70s, but they never got to the Isle of Man. I'm certain of that. So if it is John Jig, there's an explanation why the dental records were never found. And that's unusual because if you found someone in the UK, you expect they would have checked those dental records. But of course, this starts to, together with all the other things, makes you start to think, well, maybe John Jig is a possibility and a possibility that is more serious than just any random person that's gone missing. Now, this is obviously what's brought you now here to the Isle of Man. Uh, and what do you know now about Mr. Jake? He, does he still have relatives on the island? Have you been able to speak to anybody? Well, the John Jake story is really interesting in the sense of he was a scoutmaster and he was a well-known uh, leader in, the, in First Douglas Scouts. Uh, and there are people around here now, in fact, I'm talking to some late, later today, who knew him well. You know, they, they were, he was their scoutmaster, and he was remembered as being a kindly, a friendly, uh, very enthusiastic man. Uh, there's pictures, lots and lots of pictures of him uh, leading the scout troop, and he lived in Murray's Road with his mum and dad and his sister, and... February the 1st, 1969, he travels to Liverpool with a set of a group of scouts. And he takes his car with him. And his car is a brand new uh, minivan, mini estate. And they, they all go over on the, on, the, on the boat to the pierhead. Because the plan is they go to Birkenhead and then they go to the gang show, which is the Birkenhead gang show, which in fact is being uh, run in Port Sunlight for the first time ever, which is weird because I was living in Port Sunlight. So this, this story has got this weird circularity that I find the body mm. 200 yards away from where I'm living and then we realise that John Jick goes missing 200 yards away from where I was living then, mm. which is really peculiar. So, so John Jick takes all the kids over to the Birkenhead and says, I've just got to go back to Liverpool. I've got an errand. In fact, what I've got to do is buy a retirement present for someone at the Isleist man steam packet company where he was a clerk something else that fits in with the sedentary nails on this on this body that's found so he said i'll see you later i'm going to you guys go off to portside if i don't catch up with you don't worry i'll see you there goes back to liverpool and he's never seen again he's never seen again so they go to the uh, they go to the gang show in port sunlight at the end of it there's an announcement anybody seen john jick no one has start to get a bit worried anyway that evening, still doesn't turn up. That mo next morning, but they've all got to come back to Douglas. He doesn't turn up. 
So they go back. To, so we're going to go back. So they go back to the ferry, catching the ferry to go back to Douglas. One of the scouts sees John's car at the pier head. That's John's car. So they all pile over to the car. Car's unlocked. They open the car. There's blood all over the passenger seat. And then they all go back to the Alaman. Notify the police. They all go back to the Alaman. So it's starting to get very serious now because John Jick's gone missing and his car's covered in blood. The story takes another turn, two more turns, in the sense of they're all back in the Isle of Man, but about a month later, three people, three youths in Liverpool, are found with John Jick's post office bank book. And there's a fair amount of money missing from it. So they're interviewed by the police. And they say, well, how do you get hold of this book? This man's missing. Could be could have been killed you got his book and they said well look this is what happened we were we beat him up he, he was in a gent's toilets in james street in liverpool said something to one of one of the lads he didn't take he took exception to it ended up we beat seven bells out of him we saw this book in his pocket we took the book we got on the bus and we cleared off and that's and that's all we know about it so so the, and that is so we know that on at five o'clock on uh, on the first of February nineteen sixty nine, John Jick was involved in an assault. After that, he literally disappears off the face of the earth. Except three months later, uh, a man called Michael Casey, who works for the steam packet company as a chief engineer on the boat, is in Birkenhead, and he's at Birkenhead docks, and he's crossing a level crossing and the barriers are down, and he's standing there waiting to get across. And a man's next to him. He's as close as I am to you, which is about four feet away. And it's John Jick. And Michael Casey knows John Jick, because he's seen him a thousand times. Mm. And he says, John, how you, how you doing? Good morning. John ignores him, mumbles something to him. Barriers go up, and he runs off. Jogs, jogs off. Mm. So he wasn't hanging around. So... And this was reported to the police. So there is very good evidence that John Jick was alive three months later. But that is the last time anyone heard anything about John Jick. Now, you've obviously been in regular contact with the police in Burton. And have you now since been in contact with the Manx Constabulary? Yeah, I have. And prior to me coming over this week to do some, I want to spend quite a lot of time at the Manx Museum looking through some of the newspapers. That's the uh, part of the job I've got this week. Uh, I've made them aware of this because, you know, we've got a, actually we've got an outside chance of solving two cases. The oldest pretty much missing person case in the UK and this long forgotten story of a missing Manx man. And if it is John and it's still, you know, it's a possibility, not a, not a certainty. It's, it's something to be closed out. Mm. But if it is John, John's currently... Nobody knows his name. He's, everyone knows him as Fred the Head, but it could be John Jick. He's, he's, he's been buried with three other people because they don't know who he is in some cemetery in, in, in Burton. He should be here because he was a, he was a proud, pr very proud Max man. Uh, you know, scout leader and lots of people liked him, lots of people respected him, but he's, but he's lost. And essentially what I'm involved with really, if it is him, is repatriating a lost Max man back to the, the island he loved. 
It's it's a fascinating story, and it must have taken over a lot of your life, this investigation. I mean, it's one of those things, I suppose, that once you start and all these facts start pouring in, it, it becomes uh, almost like a, a mission. Well, the, the weird thing about the story is that it is, it's like an Agatha Christie mystery. Because one of the things we haven't spoken about is where this body was found was completely inaccessible. It was over a locked bridge, which mm. the four people had the key to. And so if you're... And it, literally, the body's buried just on the other side of the bridge. But no one had access to the bridge, apart from the four people we kind of know who had the key. Mm. Now, there is another way around, but it's a hell of a detour to get there. So the weird thing is about the story, it's like I've become embroiled in a real-life murder mystery. In fact, I have become embroiled in one. And it's like if you've ever read the greatest book you've ever read, you don't want to put it down. This is the kind of case I don't want to put down because every every month we discover something else that has got that has got some relevance to it, and it's real. And there are real people involved, and we get to talk to real people. So it is. It's kind of not only the perfect murder for the perpetrator; it's pretty much the perfect murder to investigate. So it's not been a problem keeping my enthusiasm and interest in this. And and you're right, kind of. After COVID, when we all went back to work and I went back to work, it was much more difficult to find the time to do it. But it's it's not something I uh, it's something I look forward to doing because it's just such a fascinating tale. Now, if there's anybody listening to this on the Isle of Man that uh, obviously you've not already spoken to and they would like to get in touch with you because they think they might have some information that might be useful. How would they get in touch with you? Well, there's two ways of doing it, really. Uh, the most sensible way is to drop me an email. Now, if you want to know more about the case, there's a website. And the website to go to is www.fredthehead.info. Uh, and if you want to get in contact with me, the email, it's dead easy, is contact at fredthehead.info. So it's a really easy way of doing that. And yeah, anybody who kind of knew John or was aware of John or anything like that, I would love to talk to because, you know, it's a 50-year-old case, 55-year-old case nearly now. We're not going to get another shot at this. We're just not going to on both of these cases. So if anybody knows anything about him, anything about the circumstances, you know, now's the time to say because there won't be another chance. So it would be wonderful to uh, to talk to as many people who knew John because just getting the context of it all will enable us to work out whether John's relevant to it or John may have chose to go and change his life. And if that's the case, you know, we'll respect that. But if it's if it's Fred, if John's Fred, then now's the, now's the time to, to get that nailed down. Are there any other leads elsewhere that you're following or is this now your prime, your prime one? Well, there are leads in perpetrators because, weirdly, uh, there's a serial killer living in the village. Hmm. Winds Hill is a small village. It's a quarter of the size of... Well, tenth of size of Douglas. But there's a serial killer living there. A man that goes on to, to kill, he, just, he claimed, 16 people later on in his life. But he was there as an 18-year-old at the time. So, I mean, mm. how, many, how mm. many villages have two serial killers living in them? <laughs> you know, not many. So... But also, there are, there's somebody who's living there. One of the key holders to the to the area where the man's body was found 
who emigrates at exactly the time that the body was killed. And he emigrates in a hurry. And I always think when people emigrate in a hurry, what are they running from? So, so, there are, so there are lots. John Dick is our primary person in terms of victim interest. But there are some very interesting people, including Anthony Hardy, the serial killer, who we are investigating from a perpetrator perspective.